Seen sinners, while such, are capable of the most perfect convictions and will have them at the day of judgment and in hell, who shall say that God never shall cause reprobates to anticipate the future judgment and damnation in that respect? And if he does so, who shall say to him, What doest thou, or call him to an account concerning his ends in so doing? Not but that many possible wise ends might be thought of and mentioned, if it were needful, or I had now room for it. The Spirit of God is often quenched by the exercise of the wickedness of men's hearts after he has gone far in a work of conviction, so that their convictions never have a good issue. And who can say that sinners, by the exercise of their oppositions and enmity against God, which is not at all mortified by the greatest legal convictions, neither in the damned in hell nor sinners on earth, may not provoke God to take his spirit from them, even after he has proceeded the greatest length in a work of conviction? Who can say that God never is provoked to destroy some after he has brought them, as it were, through the wilderness, even to the edge of the land of rest? As he slew some of the Israelites, even in the plains of Moab, and let it be considered, where is our warrant in Scripture to make use of any legal convictions or any method or order of successive events in a work of the law and consequent comforts as a sure sign of regeneration? The Scripture is abundant in expressly mentioning evidences of grace and of a state of favor with God as characteristics of true saints. But where do we ever find such things as these amongst those evidences? Or where do we find any other sign insisted on besides grace itself, its nature, exercises, and fruits? These were the evidences that Job relied upon. These were the things that the psalmist everywhere insists upon as evidences of his sincerity, and particularly in the 119th Psalm, from the beginning to the end. These were the signs that Hezekiah trusted to in his sickness. These were the characteristics of those that are truly happy given by our Savior in the beginning of a Sermon on the Mount. These are the things that Christ mentions as the true evidences of being his real disciples in his last and dying discourse to his disciples in the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John and in his intercessory prayer, chapter 17. These are the things which the Apostle Paul often speaks of as evidences of his sincerity ensure title to a crown of glory, and these are the things he often mentions to others in his epistles as the proper evidences of real Christianity, a justified state, and a title to glory. He insists on the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, as the proper evidences of being Christ and living in the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 to 25. It is that charity or divine love which is pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy, and so on, that he insists on is the most essential evidence of true godliness, without which all other things are nothing.
Such are the signs which the Apostle James insists on is a proper evidence of a truly wise and good man. James 3.17 The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And such are the signs of true Christianity, which the Apostle John insists on throughout his epistles, and we never have anywhere in the Bible, from the beginning to the end of it, any other signs of godliness given than such as these. If persons have such things as these apparently in them, it ought to be determined that they are truly converted, without its being first known what method the Spirit of God took to introduce these things into the soul, which oftentimes is altogether untraceable. All the works of God are in some respect unsearchable, but the scripture often represents the works of the Spirit of God as peculiarly so. Isaiah 40, verse 13. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? Ecclesiastes 11.5 Is thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. John 3 verse 8 The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Section 6. It follows from my text and doctrine that it is no certain sign of grace that persons have earnest desires and longings after salvation. The devils doubtless long for deliverance from the misery they suffer and from that greater misery which they expect. If they tremble through fear of it, they must necessarily earnestly desire to be delivered from it. Wicked men are in Scripture represented as longing for the privilege of the righteous when the door is shut and they are shut out from among them. They come to the door and cry, Lord, Lord, open to us. Therefore, we are not to look on all desires that are very earnest and vehement as certain evidences of a pious heart. There are earnest desires of a religious nature, which the saints have, that are the proper breathings of a new nature and distinguishing qualities of true saints. But there are also longings which unregenerate men may have, which are often mistaken for marks of godliness. They think they hunger and thirst after righteousness, and have earnest desires after God and Christ, and long for heaven, when indeed all is to be resolved into self-love. And so is a longing which arises from no higher principles than the earnest desires of devils. Section 7 it may be inferred from what has been observed that persons who have no grace may have a great apprehension of an external glory in things heavenly and divine, and of whatsoever is external pertaining to religion. If persons have impressed strongly on their minds ideas obtained by the external senses, whether by the ear, as any kind of sound, pleasant music, or words spoken of excellent signification, words of scripture suitable to their case, or adapted to the subject of their meditations, or ideas obtained by the eye, as of a visible beauty and glory, a shining light, golden streets, gates of precious stone, a most magnificent throne, 
throne surrounded by angels and saints and shining ranks, or anything external belonging to Jesus Christ, either in his humble state, is hanging on the cross with his crown of thorns, his wounds open, and blood trickling down, or in his glorified state, with awful majesty, or ravishing beauty and sweetness in his countenance, his face shining above the brightness of the sun, and the like, these things are no certain signs of grace. Multitudes that are now in hell will have ideas of the external glory that pertains to things heavenly, far beyond whatever any have in this world. They will see all that external glory and beauty in which Christ will appear at the day of judgment, when the sun shall be turned into darkness before him, which doubtless will be ten thousand times greater than ever was impressed on the imagination of either saints or sinners in this present state, or was ever conceived by any mortal man." Section 8. It may be inferred from the doctrine that persons who have no grace may have a very great and affecting sense of many divine things on their hearts. The devil has not only great speculative knowledge, but he has a sense of many divine things which deeply affects him and is most strongly impressed on his heart as number 1. The devils and damned souls have a great sense of the vast importance of the things of another world. They are in the invisible world, and they see and know how great the things of that world are. Their experience teaches them in the most affecting manner. They have a great sense of the worth of salvation, and the worth of immortal souls, and the vast importance of those things that concern men's eternal welfare. The parable in the latter end of the sixteenth chapter of Luke teaches this, in representing the rich man in hell, as entreating that Lazarus might be sent to his five brothers, to testify unto them, lest they should come to that place of torment. They who endure the torments of hell have doubtless a most lively and affecting sense of the vastness of an endless eternity, and of the comparative momentariness of this life and the vanity of the concerns and enjoyments of time. They are convinced effectually that all the things of this world, even those that appear greatest and most important to the inhabitants of the earth, are despicable trifles in comparison of the things of the eternal world. They have a great sense of the preciousness of time and the means of grace and the inestimable value of the privileges which they enjoy, which live under the gospel. They are fully sensible of the folly of those that go on in sin, neglect their opportunities, make light of the counsels and warnings of God, and bitterly lament their exceeding folly in their own sins, by which they have brought on themselves so great and remediless misery. When sinners by woeful experience know the dreadful issue of their evil way, they will mourn at the last, saying, How have I hated and struck? and my heart despised reproof, and have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined mine ear to them that instructed me. Proverbs 4, 11, 12, and 13. Therefore, however true godliness is attended with a great sense of the importance of divine things, and it is rare that men who have no grace maintain such a sense in a steady and persevering manner, yet it is manifest, though things are no certain evidences of grace,
life. Unregenerate men may have a sense of the importance of eternity in the vanity of time, the worth of immortal souls, in the preciousness of time and the means of grace, in the folly of the way of allowed sin. They may have such a sense of those things as may deeply affect them and cause them to mourn for their sins and be much concerned for others, though it be true, they have not these things in the same manner and in all respects from the same principles and views as godly men have them. Number two. Devils and damned men have a strong and most affecting sense of the awful greatness and majesty of God. This is greatly made manifest in the execution of divine vengeance on his enemies. Romans 9.22 What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? The devils tremble before this great and terrible God, and under a strong sense of his awful majesty. It is greatly manifested to them in damned souls now, but shall be manifested in a further degree in that day when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven in flaming fire to take vengeance upon them, and when they shall earnestly desire to fly and be hid from the face of him that sits on the throne, which shall be because of the glory of his majesty, Isaiah 2.10 and when they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When Christ comes at the last day in the glory of his Father, every eye shall see him in that glory, in this respect, that they shall see his terrible majesty, and they also that pierced him, Revelations 1.7. Both those devils and wicked men which tormented and insulted him when he appeared in meanness and ignominy shall then see him in the glory of his Father. It is evident, therefore, that a sense of God's terrible majesty is no certain evidence of saving grace, for we see that wicked men and devils are capable of it, yea, many wicked men in this world have actually had it. This is a manifestation which God made of himself in the sight of that wicked congregation at Mount Sinai, which they saw, and with which they were deeply affected, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Number three, devils and damned men have some kind of conviction and sense of all attributes of God, both natural and moral, that is strong and very affecting. The devil knows God's almighty power. They saw a great manifestation of it when they saw God lay the foundation of the earth and were much affected with it. They have seen innumerable other great demonstrations of his power, as in the universal deluge, the destruction of Sodom, the wonders in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness, causing the sun to stand still in Joshua's time, and many others, and they had a very affecting manifestation of God's mighty power on themselves, in casting all their hosts down from heaven into hell, and have continual affecting experience of it, in God's reserving them and strong chains of darkness, and in the strong pains that they feel, they will hereafter have far more affecting experience of it, when they shall be punished with the glory of God's power, with that mighty destruction in expectation of which they now tremble. So the devils have a great knowledge of the wisdom of God. 
They have had unspeakably more opportunity and occasion to observe it in the work of creation and also in the works of providence than any mortal man has ever had, and have been themselves the subjects of innumerable affecting manifestations of it in God's disappointing and confounding them in their most subtle devices in so wonderful and amazing a manner. So they see and find the infinite purity and holiness of the divine nature in the most affecting manner as this appears in this infinite hatred of sin and what they feel of the dreadful effects of that hatred. They know already by what they suffer and will know hereafter to a greater degree and far more affecting manner that such is the opposition of God's nature to sin that it is like a consuming fire which burns with infinite vehemence against it. They also will see the holiness of God exercised in his love to righteousness and holiness in the glory of Christ in his church, which also will be very affecting to devils and wicked men, and the exact justice of God will be manifest to them in the clearest and strongest most convincing and most affecting light at the day of judgment, when they will also see great and affecting demonstrations of the riches of his grace and the marvelous fruits of his love to the vessels of mercy, when they shall see them at the right hand of Christ, shining as the sun in the kingdom of the Father, and shall hear the blessed sentence pronounced upon them, and will be deeply affected with it, as seems naturally implied in Luke 13:28 and 29. The devil knows God's truth, and therefore they believe his threatenings and tremble in expectation of their accomplishment. And wicked men that now doubt his truth and dare not trust his word will hereafter, in the most convincing, affecting manner, find his word to be true in all that he has threatened, and will see that he is faithful to his promises in the rewards of the saints." Devils and damned men know that God is eternal and unchangeable, and therefore they despair of there ever being an end to their misery. Therefore it is manifest that merely persons having an affecting sense of some or even of all of God's attributes is no certain sign that they have the true grace of God in their hearts. Objection Here possibly some may object against the force of the foregoing reasoning that ungodly men in this world are in exceeding different circumstances from those in which the devils are and from those which wicked men will be in at the day of judgment. Though things which are visible and present to these are now future and invisible to the other, and wicked men in this world are in the body that clogs and hinders the soul, and are encompassed with objects that blind and stupefy them, therefore it does not follow that because the wicked in another world have a great apprehension and lively sense of such things without grace, ungodly men in this present state may have the same answer. To this I answer, it is not supposed that ever men in this life have all those things which have been mentioned to the same degree that the devils and damned have them. 
none supposes that ever any in this life have terrors of conscience to an equal degree with them. It is not to be supposed that any mortal man, whether godly or ungodly, has an equal degree of speculative knowledge with the devil, and, as was just now observed, the wicked at the day of judgment will have a vastly greater idea of the external glory of Christ than ever any have in the present state. So doubtless they will have a far greater sense of God's awful greatness and terrible majesty than any could subsist under in this frail state. So we may well conclude that the devils and wicked men in hell have a greater and more affecting sense of the vastness of eternity, and in some respects a greater sense of the importance of the things of another world than any here have, and they have also longings after salvation to a higher degree than any wicked men in this world. But yet it is evident that men in this world may have things of the same kind with devils and damned men. The same sort of light in the understanding, the same views and affections, the same sense of things, the same kind of impressions on the mind and on the heart. The objection is against the conclusiveness of that reasoning which is the Apostle's more properly than mine. The Apostle judged it a conclusive argument against such a thought as their believing there was one God, and evidence of their being gracious that the devils believed the same. So the argument is exactly the same against such as think they have grace because they believe God is a holy God, or because they have a sense of the awful majesty of God. The same may be observed of other things that have been mentioned. My text has reference not only to the act of the understanding of devils in believing, but to that affection of their hearts, which accompanies the views they have, as trembling is an effect of the affection of the heart which shows that if men have both the same views of understanding and also the same affections of heart that the devils have, it is no sign of grace. And as to the particular degree to which these things may be carried in men in this world without grace, it appears not safe to make use of it as an infallible rule to determine men's state. I know not where we have any rule to go by to fix the precise degree in which God by his providence or his common influences on the mind will excite in wicked men in this world the same view and affections which the wicked have in another world, which it is manifest the former are capable of, as well as the latter, having the same faculties and principles of soul, and which views and affections, it is evident, they often are actually the subjects of in some degree some in a greater and some in a less degree. The infallible evidences of grace which are laid down in Scripture are of another kind. They are all of a holy and spiritual nature, and therefore things of that kind which a heart that is wholly carnal and corrupt cannot receive or experience. 1 Corinthians 2.14 I might also here add that observation and experience, in very many instances, seems to confirm what Scripture and reason teaches in these things. The second use may be of self-examination. Let the things which have been observed put all on examining themselves, and inquiring whether they have any better evidences of saving grace than such as have been mentioned. We see how the infallible Spirit of God in the text plainly represents the things of which the devils are the subjects as no sure sign of grace. 
And we have now, in some instances, observe how far the devils and damned men go, and will go, in their experience, their knowledge of divine things, their belief of truth, their awakenings and terrors of conscience, their conviction of guilt, and of the justice of God in their eternal dreadful damnation, their longings after salvation, their sight of the external glory of Christ and heavenly things, their sense of the vast importance of the things of religion, and another world, their sense of the awful greatness and terrible majesty of God, yea, of all God's attributes. These things may well put us on serious self-examination, whether we have anything to evidence our good estate beyond what the devils have. Christ said to his disciples, Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the Spirit of Christ, in his Apostle James, does in effect say in my text, Except what you experience in your souls go beyond the experience of devils, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of God. Here it may be, some will be ready to say, I have something besides all these things, what the devils have not, even love and joy. I answer, you may have something besides the experiences of devils, and yet nothing beyond them. Though the experience be different, yet it may not be owing to any different principle, but only the different circumstances under which these principles are exercised. The, the principles from whence the aforementioned things and devils and damn men arise are these two, natural understanding and self-love. It is from these principles of natural understanding and self-love, as exercised about their own dispositions and actions, and God as their judge, that they have natural conscience, and have such convictions of conscience as have been spoken of. It is from these principles that they have such a sense of the importance of the things of religion and the eternal world, and such longings after salvation. It is from the joint exercise of these two principles that they are so sensible of the awful majesty of God, and of all the attributes of the divine nature, and so greatly affected with them. And it is from these principles, joined with external sense, the wicked at the day of judgment will have so great an apprehension of, and will be so greatly affected by the external glory of Christ and his saints, and that you have a kind of love or gratitude and joy, which devils and damned men have not, may possibly not arise from any other principles in your heart different from these two, but only from these principles as exercised in different circumstances. As, for instance, you are being a subject of the restraining grace of God and under circumstances to hope. The natural understanding and self-love of devils possibly might affect them in the same manner if they were in the same circumstances. If your love to God has its first source from nothing else than a supposed immediate divine witness or any other supposed evidence that Christ died for you in particular and that God loves you, it springs from no higher principles than self-love, which is a principle that reigns in the hearts of devils. Self-love is sufficient without grace to cause men to love those that love them, or that they imagine love them, and make much of them. Luke 6.32 For if you love them which love you, what thank have you? For sinners also love those that love them. It would not the hearts of devils be filled with great joy if they, by any means, should take up a confident persuasion that God had pardoned them? 
and was become their friend, and that they should be delivered from that wrath of which they are now in trembling expectation? If the devils go so far as you have heard, even in their circumstances, being totally cast off and given up to unrestrained wickedness, being without hope, knowing that God is and ever will be their enemy, they suffering his wrath without mercy, how far may we reasonably suppose they might go, in imitation of grace and pious experience, if they had the same degree of knowledge, as clear views, and a strong conviction, under circumstances of hope and offers of mercy, and being the subjects of common grace, restraining their corruptions, and assisting and exciting the natural principles of reason, conscience, and so on. Such things, or anything like them, in the heart of a sinner in this world, at the time that he, from some strong impression on his imagination, has suddenly, after great tears, imbibed the confidence that now this great God is his friend and father, has released him from all the misery he feared, and has promised him eternal happiness. I say, such things would doubtless vastly heighten his ecstasy of joy, and raise the exercise of natural gratitude, that principle from whence sinners love those that love them, and would occasion a great imitation of many graces and strong exercises. Is it any wonder, then, that multitudes under such a sort of affection are deceived? especially when they have devils to help forward the delusion, whose great subtlety has chiefly been exercised in deceiving mankind through all past generations. Inquiry. Here possibly some may be ready to inquire. If there be so many things which men may experience from no higher principles than are in the minds and hearts of devils, what are those exercises and affections that are of a higher nature, which I must find in my heart, and which I must justly look upon as sure signs of the saving grace of God's Spirit? I answer, those exercises and affections which are good evidences of grace differ from all that the devils have and all that can arise from such principles as are in their hearts in two things, their foundation and their tendency. They differ in their foundation or in that belonging to them which is the foundation of all the rest that pertains to them, an apprehension or sense of the supreme holy beauty and comeliness of divine things as they are in themselves or in their own nature. Of this the devils and damned in hell are, and forever will be, entirely destitute. This the devils once had, while they stood in their integrity, but they wholly lost it when they fell. And this is the only thing that can be mentioned pertaining to the devil's apprehension and sense of the divine being that he did lose. Nothing else belonging to the knowledge of God can be devised of which he is destitute. It has been observed that there is no one attribute of the divine nature but what he knows with a strong and very affecting conviction. This, I think, is evidently undeniable, but to the supreme beauty of the divine nature he is altogether blind. He sees no more of it than a man born perfectly blind does of colors. The great sight he has of the attributes of God gives him an idea and strong sense of his awful majesty, but no idea of his beauty and comeliness. 
though he has seen so much of God's wonderful works of power, wisdom, holiness, justice, and truth, and his wonderful works of grace to mankind for so many thousand years, and has had occasion to observe them with the strongest attention, it all serves not to give him the least sense of his divine beauty." And though the devil should continue to exercise their mighty powers of mind with the strongest intention, and should take things in all possible views, in every order and arrangement, yet they will never see this. So little akin is the knowledge that they have to this, that the great degrees of that knowledge bring them no nearer to it. Yet the more knowledge they have of God of that kind, the more do they hate God, that wherein the beauty of the divine nature does most essentially consist his holiness his moral excellency appears in their eyes furthest from beauty it is on that very account chiefly that he appears hateful to them the more holiness they see in him the more hateful he appears the greater their sight is of his holiness the higher is their hatred of him raised and because of their hatred of his holiness they hate him the more the more they see of his other attributes. They would hate a holy being, whatever his other attributes were, but they hate such a holy being the worse for his being infinitely wise and infinitely powerful, more than they would do if they saw in him less power and less wisdom. The wicked at the day of judgment will see everything else in Christ but his beauty and amiableness. There is no one quality or property of his person that can be thought of but what will be set before them in the strongest light at that day. But only such as consist in this. They will see him coming in the clouds of heaven, in power and great glory, in the glory of his Father. They will have that view of his external glory which is vastly beyond what we can imagine and they will have the strongest and most convincing demonstrations of all his attributes and perfections they will have a sense of his great majesty that will be as it were infinitely affecting to them they shall be made to know effectually that he is the lord they shall see what he is and what he does his nature and work shall appear in the strongest view but his infinite beauty and amiableness, which is all in all, and without which every other property is nothing, and worse than nothing, they will not see. Truly gracious affections and exercises of mind differ from such as are counterfeit, which arise from no higher principles than are in the hearts of devils, in their tendency, and in these two respects, number one, they are of a tendency and influence very contrary to that which was especially the devil's sin, even pride. That pride was in a peculiar manner the devil's sin is manifest from First Timothy 3.6. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. False and delusive experiences evermore tend to this, though oftentimes under the disguise of great and extraordinary humility. Spiritual pride is the prevailing temper and general character of hypocrites, deluded with false discoveries and affections. They are, in general, of a disposition directly contrary to those two things, belonging to the Christian Christian temper directed to by the Apostle 
the one in Romans 7:16, Be not wise in your own conceit, and the other in Philippians 2:3, Let each esteem others better than themselves. False experience is conceited of itself and affected with itself. Thus he that has false humility is much affected to think how he is abased before God. He that has false love is affected when he thinks of the greatness of his love. The very food and nourishment of false experience is to view itself and take much notice of itself, and its very breath and life is to be some way showing itself, whereas truly gracious views and affections are of quite a contrary tendency. They nourish no self-conceit, no exalting notion of the man's own righteousness, experience, or privileges, no high conceit of his humiliations. They incline to no ostentation. No self-exaltation under any disguise whatsoever, but that sense of the supreme holy beauty and glory of God in Christ, which is the foundation of them, mortifies pride and truly humbles the soul. It not only cuts off the outmost branches, but it strikes at the very root of pride. It alters the very nature and disposition of the heart. The light of God's beauty, and that alone truly shows the soul its own deformity, and effectually inclines it to exalt God and abase itself. The third use may be of exhortation to seek those distinguishing qualifications and affections of soul which neither the devil nor any unholy being has or can have. How excellent is that inward virtue and religion which consists in those. Herein consists the most excellent experiences of saints and angels in heaven. Herein consists the best experience of the man Christ Jesus, whether in his humbled or glorified state. Herein and consists the image of God. Yea, this is spoken of in Scripture as a communication of something of God's own beauty and excellency, a participation of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4, a partaking of His holiness, Hebrews 12.10, a partaking of Christ's fullness, John 1.16. Hereby the saints are filled with all the fullness of God, Ephesians 3.18 and 19. Hereby they have fellowship with both the Father and the Son, 1 John 1, 3. That is, they communicate with them in their happiness. Yea, by means of this divine nature, there is a mutual indwelling of God and the saints, 1 John 4:16. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God in God in him. This qualification must render the person that has it excellent and happy indeed, and doubtless is the highest dignity and blessedness of any creature. This is a peculiar gift of God which he bestows only on his special favorites. As to silver, gold, and diamonds, earthly crowns and kingdoms, he often throws them out to those whom he esteems as dogs and swine. But this is a peculiar blessing of his dear children. This this is what flesh and blood cannot impart. God alone can bestow it. This is a special benefit which Christ died to procure for his elect, the most excellent token of his everlasting love, the chief fruit of his great labors, and the most precious purchase of his blood. By this, above all other things, do men glorify God. By this, above all other things, do the saints shine as the lights in the world, and are blessings to mankind. 
and this above all things tends to their own comfort. From hence arises that peace which passeth all understanding, and that joy which is unspeakable and full of glory, and this is that which will most certainly issue in the eternal salvation of those who have it. It is impossible that the soul possessing it should sink and perish. It is an immortal seed. It is eternal life begun, and therefore they that have it can never die. It is the dawning of the light of glory. It is the day star risen in the heart that is a sure forerunner of that sun's rising, which will bring on an everlasting day. This is that water which Christ gives, which is in him that drinks it, a well of water springing up into everlasting life. John 4:14. 4, it is something from heaven of a heavenly nature, and tends to heaven. And those that have it, however they now wander in a wilderness, or be tossed to and fro on a tempestuous ocean, shall certainly arrive in heaven at last, where this heavenly spark shall be increased and perfected, and the soul of the saints all be transformed into a bright and pure flame, and they shall shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of their Father. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God, for when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. 
The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.